Hi, and welcome to Episode 5 of Divided by Design, a podcast series on systemic racism. My name is Mitch Landrew, and I'm the founder and president of E Pluribus Unum. E Pluribus Unum is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization whose mission it is to build a more just and equitable and inclusive South, uprooting the barriers that have long divided the region by race and class. This week, Divided by Design will confront the centuries-old racist systems of housing inequity and physical segregation, two racially divisive practices that have become embedded into the fabric of American society and are still as highly effective in creating and maintaining racial inequities today as they were in the 18th century. In order to provide a more detailed look into the racial disparities caused by centuries of systemic racism in land ownership and housing, we will explore the history of how these systems were first introduced in American society, and how the abolition of slavery and the immediate citizenship of African Americans changed the voting landscape and the power of land ownership, especially in the South. We're talking to advocates, historians, and experts. We hope to walk you through how we got here and how we can move forward towards healing and reconciliation. We will discuss how decades of institutional bias in the real estate and mortgage industries and the implementation of such deliberately racist policies as redlining have caused irreparable damage to black and brown communities nationwide. The effect of this damage can still be felt by millions of people of color, gender, and ages living across the United States but especially in the American South, home of the lowest minimum wage in America and some of the poorest communities in this country. Nathaniel Smith, who serves as Chief Equity Officer at the Partnership for Southern Equity in Atlanta, believes that the promise of 40 acres and a mule made to African Americans following slavery was never really meant to become reality because the former slaves who were now free were the economic engine of the American South. When people ask me that question, I say one of the main issues that stopped us from having an opportunity to get 40 acres and a mule is that we are the mule, right? We are the mule for this nation. We, we have been the mule, the economic mule that has driven this economy. And so they are not going to give mule, a mule to a mule. In addition to creating racially divisive systems designed to diminish black land ownership and thus black voting power, White leaders across the country created new ways of stripping blacks of their newfound economic and political power. Danielle Solomon, Vice President of Race and Ethnicity Policy at the Center for American Progress, explains some of the various ways that African Americans have been stripped of their power since Reconstruction. Banks, real estate agents, uh, the real estate industry, uh, builders have all made money off of stripping wealth out of black communities. We saw it with the building of Central Park in New York. Olympic Park in Atlanta, uh, the violence uh, that was um, besieged on Tulsa, um, inter the Interstate Highway Act. So these were laws. And I really want to just pinpoint that policy and laws allowed this to happen in Black communities, the stripping of wealth. People knew this was happening and allowed it to happen and perpetuate. Um, redlining is probably the most famous. Most people understand what that is. But I did actually write down two facts I wanted to share with the audience. So between 1934 and 1962, um, $120 billion in FHA loans went out um, to families. 2% of that money went to non-white families. Only 2%. 
Uh, 74% of the areas that were deemed hazardous or in redlined areas in the 30s remain today low to moderate income and 60% are predominantly made up of communities of color. So policy and what we do at the state, local and federal level, as well as what companies are doing around stripping wealth, not only had an impact then, but it has an impact today. Among two of the most damaging of the systems ever created in this country to strip wealth and economic power from blacks and other people of color of wealth were the federal government's FHA home loan program, which overwhelmingly favored white families and the devaluing of black and brown neighborhoods through a process called redlining. Mark Morial believes that these programs were created to diminish black wealth decades ago and are still going on today. When... The FHA was founded and the the government started guaranteeing home loans and they drew lines around neighborhoods and said, we can't insure any loans here, here and here. It just so happened to be the African-American neighborhoods, right? And, And that's another example of how then the mortgage market that's created and the home ownership opportunities that are created uh, exclude African-Americans because of decisions that are being made in an institutional sense. Dr. Andre Perry, a fellow at the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institute, points to a long history of racist systems in the United States designed to stifle black growth in home ownership and wealth generation. There's been this long-standing white supremacist myth that states that the conditions of black cities and neighborhoods are a direct result of the people in them. But we know that there's been policies and practices that have throttled black wealth creation and community development. And it it has been that intentional devaluation of black lives that has really created the kind of wealth disparities that exist today. um, You probably know, many people know that the wealth disparity, the black white um, 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 wealth gap is about 170,000 for white um, um, families to to about 17,000 for black families. And we know that a lot of that occurred because the the federally backed homeowners loan corporation red line districts prohibiting um, the letting out of low interest loans, refinancing loans, home loans um, to families that enabled white families to move to and to start new neighborhoods. Um, more importantly, it is it enabled families to pass on wealth through um, the equity in their homes to to their children and to their children. And, And Blacks were prohibited from that. As we now near the 100th anniversary of the infamous Red Summer in America from 1919 to 1921, a two-year period that saw more than 30 independent black communities destroyed and innumerable black deaths at the hands of white mobs, most notably Tulsa's Black Wall Street. It is ironic to see that many racist systems created more than a century ago are still pervasive today. We also discovered that communities that were redlined for quote-unquote no development and relegated to the status of undeserved communities remain as such some even poorer than they were when the initial red lines were drawn. Today, many of these communities across the American South are going through a period of massive change, spurred by factors including the economic downturn and health scare created by the COVID-19 epidemic, the murder of George Floyd, and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, 
and the logjam within Congress to provide any considerable financial relief to a nation experiencing massive unemployment. Reviewing the effects of nearly 150 years of institutional racism that has consumed their communities since the end of the Civil War, does one really need to ask how people of the American South feel about race and racism today? This has profoundly affected their lives. The question is, how do we move America towards a more racially equitable society so that we all benefit? On our journey across the South, we talk to citizens of all walks of life about what matters to them and how divisions by race and class have impacted their lives. Janelle Young of Montgomery, Alabama feels that there is too much romanticizing about the history of the South, disregarding the history of evil sins that are inherent in the American South's legacy. The way we hold on to history and the way we glorify it or romanticize it needs to stop. I just, I just don't think we're honest. I think we're romanticizing people. You know, we'll do Gone with the Wind and not talk about the destruction that happened during slavery and the Civil War. I think once we can face the truth about who the South is, you can see who America is, because America has benefited from everything the South has done, then we can move forward. In a report by the Century Foundation, researchers found that the separateness of black and white families has contributed to the enormous racial wealth gap and the unequal access to good public education. Higher levels of education and income typically translate into higher levels of wealth and less exposure to concentrated poverty. A male from Richmond who studied urban planning believes that the redlining of community services to black and brown communities is alive and well in Richmond today. I'm a student of urban planning and in my studies of that here in this city, race played quite a specific role on how we rated neighborhoods, on what neighborhoods were deemed slums, on what neighborhoods were raised, um, on what neighborhoods got sewage, uh, plumbing, et cetera, et cetera, and it still continues to this day. A 36-year-old white male from Charlotte believes that compared to white communities, blacks don't get equal resources. And so when you have schools that are either 98% um, Caucasian or 98% children of color, ultimately those schools don't end up getting the same level of resources and those students don't have the same level of opportunities. In 1917, the Supreme Court ruled against racial segregation by zoning ordinance. Cities interpreted the ruling as inapplicable to their zoning laws because their laws prohibited only residents of blacks in white neighborhoods, not ownership. Residential segregation was supported at all levels of government through racially explicit policies and not just the result of private prejudices. To isolate white families in all white urban neighborhoods, Cities adopted racial zoning laws to prohibit blacks from buying homes on blocks where whites lived. Here, Dr. Tamika Simmons talks about how you can tell the difference between black and white communities throughout the South due to the systemic racism that privileges white families. Greenville, just like any other place in America, can't grow like that. We can't continue to live economically on opposite sides of the track. It just cannot happen. You shouldn't be able to ride through a town, see no one, but you can easily tell the white side and the black side. That's an issue and that's intentional and that's systemic. And somebody thought through how we can make that happen. A young black man sees opportunities in Louisville, but not for young people of his race. 
when you go to other parts of the city, you see opportunity, you see other people flourishing, and naturally you wonder, why can't I flourish too? I think true diversity, where black people are concerned, is economic, educational, cultural empowerment within your own. And if government and other resources can fuel black people and disenfranchised communities uh, to help themselves, then that's better. Dr. Janice Page Johnson believes that racial and economic disparities in her hometown of Greenville, Mississippi, persist even in a town where the races, at times, have to gather together. In Greenville, I feel as if there are two communities within one city. So it's a, it feels very segregated at times. But, you know, if I go to Walmart, I see a diverse group of people. But when you're interacting day to day, there's a different, um, you know, different set of systems that you operate in. For black people, residential segregation by race imposes an additional penalty. Black households headed by an individual with a bachelor's degree have just two-thirds of the wealth, on average, of white households headed by an individual who lacks a high school degree. While median income for black households is 59% that of white households, black median household net worth is just 8% of white median household net worth. Owner-occupied homes are undervalued by the real estate market across all majority black neighborhoods and consistently sell or are appraised for lower prices at an average of $48,000 per home. Nationwide, this amounts to $156 billion in cumulative losses. A young black male in Louisville believes that years of redlining by Louisville city officials is responsible for the disparity in property values with Louisville's black communities. Most of the poor residents live in this one area of the city. Everywhere west of 9th Street is very uh, disinvested, poor, and that's where you see a lot of the violence is at, and this is also predominantly black. So it comes from a history of redlining that Louisville has, which also I feel like hasn't been adequately addressed. A 43-year-old black male from Knoxville, Tennessee, believes that segregation between the races breeds a sense of disconnect that fuels racial stereotypes and falsehoods. Because of the way this city is sort of segregated, most, most whites don't necessarily have to deal with black folk on a daily basis. And so that, in, in essence, breeds um, this sense of racism because we don't yeah. deal with each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not always racism. It's, it's sometimes it's just, I don't know you and I don't deal with you. A 34-year-old white female from Charleston, West Virginia, feels that people of color shouldn't have to feel like they belong only in certain parts of her city. When I, you know, when folks feel like they only belong in certain parts of towns, it's really um, challenging. And I think that they're, the that is painful as well. It should be, it should be um, painful for an entire community if people don't feel the freedom of movement within their own communities. Mm-hmm. Prior to the Supreme Court's landmark ruling in Brown versus Board of Education, schools played a role in maintaining residential segregation. To keep black families from moving into white neighborhoods, localities would place the only schools that serve black children in designated black neighborhoods and provide no transportation for black students who lived elsewhere. Families were forced to reside in those designated neighborhoods to make sure their children could get an education. A young black female student in Sunflower, Mississippi, 
explains how young black students never have the opportunity to interact with young white students from neighboring high schools. Everything is like very segregated and like we all go to different schools. We all stay on separate sides of town. And like, um, you don't get a chance to like grow up with these people and like get to know them because like you're so divided between yourselves and like you're in their, your own world and they're in their own bubble. And then like when you finally meet, you only like think about like stereotypes and those limit you. Urban renewal programs often had similarly undisguised purposes to force low-income black residents away from universities, hospitals, or business districts and into new ghettos. Where integrated or mostly black neighborhoods were too close to whites or central business districts, interstate highways were routed by federal and local officials to raise those neighborhoods for the explicit purpose of relocating black populations to more distant ghettos or of creating barriers between white and black neighborhoods. Entire black communities were destroyed, divided, or isolated. Another effect of redlining was that retail stores began moving to the suburbs, exacerbating the economic decline of urban centers. A 66-year-old black female from Knoxville, Tennessee, feels that there are no longer middle-class salary jobs in the inner city that were once available. Uh, mainly... Uh, the have-nots are people who live in what we call the inner city. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a high school diploma or not. Mm-hmm. Most don't have uh, education beyond that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I was growing up, it used to be you could graduate from high school and get a job at um, one of the plants, you know, Levi Strauss was one, mm-hmm. Alcoa Aluminum Company was another, you know, so you could get a job that, that would put you in the middle class mm-hmm. um, right out of high school. Those jobs don't exist anymore. As a result of segregationist New Deal and post-World War II policies, employment, college attendance, home ownership, and wealth surged for whites. But disparities with their black counterparts not only continued, but understandably widened. Because blacks were prohibited from buying homes in the suburbs, they gained none of the equity appreciation that whites gained. By the time the Fair Housing Act was signed in 1968, prohibiting future discrimination, it was too late because the suburbs that had appreciated had become most unaffordable for blacks at that time. This meant they were shut out from gaining equity and the wealth that followed from that. Using their built home equity, whites were able to send their children to college, leave inheritance for their children, and take care of their parents in old age. None of these advantages accrued to blacks for generations. Today, a stark wealth gap persists between black and white Americans. The median wealth for white households is about $171,000. But for blacks, it's just $17,100, about one-tenth that for their white counterparts. The American dream of owning decent homes to raise families in safety and dignity still remains a distant dream for many in this country. In spite of more than 200 years of racial equity and injustice in the American South, the fight to build a future of global harmony through education and interaction continues. This young black female is prepared to fight for the next generation of Southern activists for racial equality. From policy to education to housing, all of it has some effect of segregation, some element of segregation in it, and that 
I'm the generation that has to fight to change that for the next one. As we've talked about today, we are in fact divided by design. The legacy of segregation is palpable across the American South and has enormous implications for how people lead their daily lives. From redlining and housing policy to physical separations by highways or railroad tracks and transit policies, physical separation is a real-life consequence of decades-old decision-making. An overwhelming number of residents interviewed stated that they are segregated not only where they live, but also where they work. Residential segregation matters because where you live affects your access to education, to employment, to transportation, to health care, and to so many other aspects of daily life that are often taken for granted. This separateness of black and white families has contributed to the enormous racial wealth gap and the unequal access to a good public education. What a price we have all paid. We must remember that the true essence of American growth comes when people from all backgrounds can strive to create a society where equality is the norm. It will take us a lot of work to get there. Please join us in this journey. This is Mitch Landrew, and we thank you for tuning in to this episode of Divided by Design. For more information on this podcast series or how to get involved in our efforts to advance equity in the South, go to www.unumfund.org. Follow us at Unum Fund on social media and email us at podcast at unumfund.org. <laughs>